Morning. If you remember me, you've been here two years. Anyone? All right. See, Jonathan said everybody left, but you're still here. Some of you are here. It's great. Uh, my name's Joe, a longtime friend of Jonathan Juby's. Um, uh, my wife, Debbie, and I are here from uh, Cincinnati, where we live these days. And I've uh, been connected to the Williams family f- uh, forever. Uh, Jonathan's dad, Paula Williams, was uh, my, the person who performed my ordination when I went into ministry when I was 22 years old. Um, and have been connected with, with uh, Forefront uh, for like nine or ten years. So every time I get to come back, uh, always love it. We love Cincinnati uh, and we love New York. And the, the, the great thing about living in Cincinnati is when you come to New York, you can afford to do all the things. <laughs> That's the best part. So we saw Town, and it was awesome. awesome. Uh, and just enjoying our time here. Um, I want you, um, if you've been in a romantic relationship before, uh, I want you to think back to your very first sort of time uh, that uh, maybe as a kid that you felt the sort of butterflies of, of romance with someone. Uh, mine was uh, Joanna. Uh, I met her at a church thing because I was a church kid. And that's when, in the eighth grade, that's where you went to pick up chicks. So, uh, but... Uh, we met at this thing where a bunch of churches came together and she lived in Georgetown, Ohio and I lived in Columbus, Ohio. So it was like a two hour drive and, you know, neither one of us could drive. We were just 13. Uh, but we fell in love and, uh, we, we actually, uh, this is going to severely date me. And some of you don't even know this world existed. This was before the, the internet, like NASA had the internet and Al Gore, but that's it. Uh, and we had to write letters to each other using our hands and utensils and paper and stamps. Um, just like Eliza and Alexander Hamilton, basically. <laughs> we used the King's English and everything. It was great. Uh, so we would write every week there'd be a letter coming in. And she, she would always like spray a little perfume on the letter. Smell letter. We got our eighth grade pictures. We each sent our school pictures to each other. Um, and then we get to go visit each other like every three months and we could talk one of our parents to driving us to the place or whatever. Um, and so I, I remember going to visit her in Georgetown, this little tiny town, Southern Ohio, and had my first kiss there under a willow, willow tree. It was very, it was very like all American romantic sort of thing. Um, and I just couldn't imagine life could ever get any better than, than having clearly the love of my life uh, and like no problems at all. Uh, and all we would ever do is just tell each other how awesome we were uh, until she finally wrote me a letter and said she kissed another boy and that was it. Yeah. It's all right. I met Debbie. It was great. It all worked out. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I'm heartbroken and then everything started to change and I begin to realize things as, you know, as now a grown-up 14-year-old, I'm like, oh, this is how it works. This is, this is how life goes. I get it. Uh, and so that tough exterior began to build. And over time, I began to realize uh, the things you love the most will sometimes, uh, the people you love the most will sometimes hurt you. And that love is really a journey that you love, right? all the grown up stuff. But, but when you're 13 or 14, like, it was just crushing. And, and that romance that I thought was supposed to last forever, I realized is just a trick to get us to fall in love with people. Uh, and then the longer you're in love, you can bring it back on purpose. But um, it, it's more than just those butterflies, right? And I tell you that story because uh, it actually relates pretty well to uh, what Jonathan asked me to talk about, which is kind of my lifelong relationship with Scripture and with the Bible. Uh, I, uh, 
originally, uh, when I was a little kid, I grew up in Appalachia, in Ashland, Kentucky, and we love the Bible down there. So uh, my, my, my parents, I'm an only child, which explains lots of things, but I'm an only child. We, did, we weren't going to church uh, in like the navel of the Bible belt, or the Bible belt, like just above the Bible belt. Uh, most people went to church. We didn't. Pokey Miller, this old preacher, his name was Pokey. Uh, he came to our house. He told us we were going to go to hell if we didn't come to church Sunday. We went to church Sunday, and that's how I started my relationship with Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but unlike most people, like, I really loved church. Um, I didn't love like the preaching from Pokey and the stuff the old people did, but we had Sunday school class, and I don't know, I can't remember any of their names or faces, but these, uh, what seemed like little old ladies, they were probably in their mid-40s, right? But, uh, like, the, <laughs> as an eight-year-old, you don't know, they're just, they're just old. So, they, uh, they would tell these stories, uh, and the grown-ups seemed to spend a lot of time using words I didn't care about, but in Sunday school, they told us these crazy stories from the scriptures, and I, I loved them. I was an imaginative kid. Like I said, I was an only child. I was my own best friend. Um, it, it never bothered me at all to just sit around and think about things. I was way into uh, Star Wars, um, and uh, I can remember, I think Empire Strikes Back, Strikes Back was the first movie I ever saw in a theater, and then later the Ewoks would come, but um, I, I just remember thinking like, man, I just wish this stuff was true. Like, I want to be a Jedi so bad. And I want a lightsaber, but not just any lightsaber. Like, one that can, like, um, use the force to come. And then I want to fight, like, fight the bad guys. And later on, as I, as I started to grow up and could, could read more, I started reading Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. I'm like, oh, why can't this be real life? Like, I want to know Gandalf, and I want to go on a journey. And I want to go on a quest. Some of you, if you're, you know, if you're younger than me, it was maybe Harry Potter or the Marvel Universe or whatever. But it, it's these, these myths and these stories that captivate us. And they seem so real, but then you leave the theater and you're like, oh, like, really? Like, real life is so freaking boring <laughs> compared to lightsabers and Gandalf. Gandalf's so great. And then I went to church and here were grownups who believed fantastical stories. And then when you pressed them on it, they're like, no, they, we really believe it really happened. And I was like, wait a second. So... Uh, <laughs> So this desire I have for this fantastical universe, it's real? That was mind-blowing to me. And I couldn't understand how the, like, the other kids wouldn't be into these stories. I'm like, guys, we, like, we cracked the matrix. Like this, <laughs> a dude got swallowed by a fish and lived in it for three days. And he, and he prayed, and then the fish vomited him out. That, these people are saying that happened. I'm like, a dude had a whole nation follow him and he stuck his stick in the ground and the, and the waters parted and they walked across and then the waters came in on the Egyptians. The other thing I loved about the Hebrew scriptures as a kid was they were so violent. <laughs> I love that. Like all that testosterone just starting to come into my system. I'm like, oh, this is so great. So much blood and war and like little boy stuff. Like it was so, and magic, magic everywhere. People walking on water, turning water to wine. Oh, it was awesome. I loved it. I loved every story. Um, I fell in love with it. And then something started to happen. It started to crack a little. Um, what I began to notice growing up in this church was uh, the same church that gave me these fantastical stories that I love and still love. They also taught me that um, 
You know, they basically said, you know, there have been Christians for a couple thousand years. I would find out later, there's actually 32,000 varieties of Christians in the world, best we can tell. That's a few. <laughs> and they said, luckily for you in Ashland, Kentucky, you found the right ones. <laughs> Turns out, all the other ones are wrong. Only we are right. Because, you know, we're in Ashland. And God has enlightened us enough uh, to use our intellect to figure out that this is exactly how this book should be interpreted. And as a kid, like, it kind of made sense to say, well, like, we're a different religion. So, like, you know, even though I wouldn't say this now as a kid, it sort of made sense to say, okay, Christians are right and Muslims are wrong or something like that. Like, I, but they're like, no, no, it's not that. Like, it is that, clearly. But <laughs> you know the 30 other churches in town? They're all going to a hell. They're going to a literal hell. Especially, they said, the liberal churches, the ones that believe that Jonah wasn't a real person that got swallowed by a fish, that it's just some myth, myth to teach us things, they're going to burn in hell. Luckily, I thought to myself, those churches don't believe in a literal hell, so they're good. They're fine. <laughs> it took me a while to figure that out. And then, the, so what was happening was, which is what happens, not just in all religion, but in, in any little subgroup we put ourselves in as people, Right? a doctrine of exceptionalism had developed within this culture. And one of the clear marks of that is if you look around, everyone is exactly the same as you. Looks the same, talks the same, believes the same. Um, and it feels safe. I don't blame them so much. I do think it is a, a human, I think it's an evolutionary thing actually. I think uh, we have to go against our instincts to not do that. Um, probably based on how we used to have to come together as tribes and you know, protect each other and hunt together and, and kill other people that were trying to get the same food we were getting. Like it was, it was pretty hard back in the day, right? So that, that we, we are tribal creatures and we are drawn to be exceptional. We want to be special. We want to be right. And honestly, if you've ever uh, lived through a period of exceptionalism in your life, it feels really freaking great. It really does. To know that your tiny little subgroup of people are the only people on earth that got it all figured out is a relief. Like you just feel so good about yourself. Um, and I understand the draw and it, it, is, uh, it is the most, I think, the most sort of uh, dangerous, dangerous thing that happens in any, any culture, any, any religion, any politic, um, but it's also natural. Um, and so I, as a kid, was then kind of groomed to believe that I, we had it all figured out. And then I did the one thing you should never do if you don't want to become an agnostic for a while, and that's go to seminary. So <laughs> when you start actually studying everything, you begin to realize, wait a second. Uh, the little group of people that told me they had it all figured out, they started in like 1921. So there was like 1,900 years of people that were wrong before one of us figured it out. And it's, once exceptionalism starts to break down, it like goes like, a, like an avalanche. And you begin to see, we don't have it all figured out. You know, even in the world of Christianity, the more I study, the more I realize if I got to pick my denomination, it wouldn't be the one that just happened to find me when I was eight years old. Just what happened? And my relationship with the Bible began to change. It went from the romance of a little kid to the like handbook to prove I was right. And now as I began to question things, it became like 
the thing in my life that I had to constantly spin. I had, because I was going into full-time ministry and, and it was my job and I, I did love God and was a Christian and wanted to figure that stuff out. Um, but there were parts of the Bible that I realized I didn't like. So luckily we didn't do like the church calendar like mainline churches do, so I just never preached on them. But I knew they were in there. Stuff I hated, I didn't like it at all. When people would ask me about it, I had read enough to spin it, just redirect. It's like I was constantly on uh, Anderson Cooper or something being asked about the Bible. <laughs> just don't answer the question they ask, just ask this. Um, and as I began to explore more and more that some of the things that I was ignoring were actually affecting real people's lives, um, you know, I got, it was exhausting to constantly sort of have people ask me the questions I would ask and give them an answer that would make them feel better because it made me feel better five years ago, but it wasn't working for me anymore. I did a lot of that, which was fine because now five years later, they're, they're where I was or whatever, but uh, it, was, it was sort of exhausting and always having to prove that, that the Bible was right, um, that it wasn't, didn't have contradictions, those sorts of things. Um, because I still needed scripture to be what they first taught me it was. And I, I didn't have a way to see it any other way. I quit being a pastor, started uh, studying improvisational comedy with the Second City in Las Vegas. Um, and I thought I was going to take those classes to learn how to be funny. Turns out I was already funny. I didn't need the classes. <laughs> What I learned was something much more deep and blindsided by it. Improv actually became my religion, really, in many ways. Um, the, first, the first teaching of improv is to be present. It's to say yes. Say yes to what's happening. Don't think about the future. Don't think about the past. Be in this moment. Um, and it, ironically, I was the preacher who quit his church to do comedy classes. But it was in the comedy classes that I learned how to meditate, how to be present, how to be spiritual. Um, and I begin to realize the more I learned about improv that maybe improv is meant for more than just comedy and that if you really think about it, unless you're super weird, every conversation, every conversation you have is improvised. <laughs> and if you memorize your conversations before you have them, that's weird. And the world is improvised. And we think of, you know, in the acting community, improv is this little subculture thing because in acting, we memorize lines and we do that. But in the real world, you don't memorize much. And the people that do, they really do sound fake and weird. And I was like, oh, so if, if, if the world really is improvised, then maybe these people that wrote these scriptures were sort of improvising it as they went to the best of their ability, to while they understood God. And maybe, maybe the gospel is improvised and in many ways I began to unpack what it might mean for me if God is an improv God. Um, if he's saying yes and with us as we walk through life and as we walk through history. Um, and that the scriptures are a reflection of people doing their very best in that moment. To understand who God is, to, to say yes to God, uh, even if they have a flawed understanding of who God might be at times. As, my, as, as scripture began to shift for me and I began to think of it more like that, some of the things I was worried about, I, I was able to answer them for me easier. So, um, you know, I was, I, I was for LGBTQI plus inclusion 
way before I admitted it to anyone or myself when I was a pastor because I would have got fired. Um, and I had constructed an argument from my old way of viewing the scriptures around whatever there are, 12 or 14 passages that seem to address something like that, even though I think it's different stuff. And I could have written a 20-page term paper on each one and broken it down and got each, each scripture to a place where I could say with certainty, I don't think this has anything to do with like, loving relationships between two people. I could have done that, but then I realized I don't have to do that. Like, we progress. The, the scriptures themselves, I think, improvise us to a better place. Let me tell you part of how I got there by telling you my, my favorite Bible story ever. It's in John chapter 8. Um, I usually act it out, but just to prove, to prove it's in there, let's look at it, the actual words in John 8. Um, it says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared in the temple courts, this in Jerusalem, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, whenever you read that in John, you should hiss, Right? The teachers of the law and the Pharisees uh, brought in a woman they caught in adultery. Okay, let's not buzz past this. These creepers watched a woman having sex and grabbed her in the act and started to drag her out. This is only a capital offense if two people see you actually doing it. Weird, right? So they grab her, uh, I guess, naked and drag her through the town. It says they made her stand. Uh, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, in the law of Moses in the scriptures. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What say you?" I like that reading better. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. This was a brilliant scheme on their part, actually, if they want to discredit Jesus. Everyone that Jesus is teaching, all those people around him now, a lot, well, a lot of them are prostitutes. Some of them are mob bosses and mobsters, but they've all got a checkered past. And if Jesus were to say, you know, the scriptures do clearly say, if two of you saw this woman doing this, that we stone her. So let's do it because we love the scriptures. Then every single one of Jesus' followers would be out of there so fast because they've done the same stuff. But if he were to say what we kind of want to happen, I think, and be like, hippie Jesus. Like, dude, no, come on, man, it's cool. We all do stuff. Like, that's the kind of Jesus I think we want today. Like, oh, that's cool. Um, if he had done that, then uh, even if he wanted to be hippie Jesus, I don't think he did. But even if he wanted to do that, uh, that's a capital offense. He just said, I don't believe in the law of Moses. In that culture, he goes to jail, maybe gets killed. It's a great trap. Uh, so what it says here is that uh, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. No idea what he wrote. No idea. Anybody tells you they don't know. Uh, I think he's just doodling. That's what I do. Like, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? <laughs> they kept on questioning him. So he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who, who is without sin be the first to throw the first stone at her. We've heard this story, right? Most of us. If you, he who was about to, without sin cast the first stone. Uh, side note, what I think he's really saying here is not if you cheated on your taxes, that's a sin, and so is this. The Hebrew scriptures say that the two people who witnessed it, that if they themselves were guilty of the same sin, that they could not be witnesses. 
So I'm pretty sure what Jesus is saying to all these pastors is if, if any of you have not had an affair, cast the first stone. It's a riskier move. But every one of them drops their stones. It says, uh, let any of you who's out there cast first stone. Then verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And that's such like a Jedi awesome move, right? <laughs> Doodle, stand, say the thing. <laughs> that thought that's going to make them all run away. Doodle, back to doodling. Verse 9, at this, those who heard begin to go away one at a time. The older ones first, such a fun little add-on to this story. They had the most time, I would assume, to be convicted of this sort of thing, right? The oldest ones first, until, listen, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up, and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's the end of the story. I love it. Here's the problem. It shouldn't be in there. It's a later story. There are a handful of scholars that try to make a case that it should be in there, but I guarantee you they're making that case because they love it as much as I do. And they want it to be scripture. They want it to be canonical. That's what Bible nerds say, right? Which means it's in the canon. It was, it, they want it to be written by the same guy that wrote that book and not slipped in by some monk later. I, it was devastating when I realized this. I tried so hard to make a convincing proof that this, Bible, that this part of John was actually written by the author of John at the time the author of John wrote John. There's no textual evidence for it at all. We found some old manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke where they snuck it in there too. These these crazy early Christians (laughs) sneaking great stories in the Bible. What's that about? Why would they they do that? Um, It used to bother me so much and then, then I became okay with it and then I became more than okay with it and then it became even my more favorite story ever. This story is so true that they made sure it got in there. It probably didn't happen. I'll give it a 2 to 5% chance that it's rooted in some sort of historical memory where the historical Jesus had some interaction. But a few hundred years pass, it's hard, it's hard to say that that is true. Could be. It's in my opinion, most likely a myth that developed from the early Christians. And not just any early Christians, but the early Christians in the Johannine community, which means, you know, there are the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all look like they copied off each other. And then there's John, which is very different. And John is a later dated book. I think about 80 to 100 years after Jesus. It's the second generations of Christians writing the account of Jesus' story. And what we see in that is an evolution or an improvisation of the understanding of Jesus. I think a a closer representation to who he really was than what the people who were actually alive with him saw. This is my opinion. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't worry too much about Jesus being divine. His son of man is what he likes to call himself in those books. It is very important to whoever wrote John that Jesus is seen as also Christ. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and Him was life, and that life was light to mankind. That's how it starts. To the Johannine Christians, Jesus was not just a man, but He was God, fully God. And the rest of Christianity, they would argue that one out for about 350 years. But to, these, to this church, they believe that so much. So when you read stories about Jesus and John, what you are reading, I think, is this community saying, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. And when it came time after wrestling with Jesus and loving Christ for several generations, I think they just saw this story as so central to who they were. What if this story is in the scripture like because it became the gospel that people lived by a few hundred years after this book was written and see how it's sort of matured. What are they trying to say in this story? Well, I think, I think what they, they just see Christ, centrally Christ, as powerful and more powerful than the things that are out to get us. Those Pharisees, they represented um, the establishment, the power, the religious power, the political power, the economic power, all the powers of the world. These are the things that still scare us. If we're being really honest, who could, what are the most powerful things really on planet Earth? Uh, politics, religion, economics, and all the violence that any of them can unfold. That's it. Those are the powers. These powerful men surround Jesus. He doodles, says one line, doodles, they're gone. That's all it takes. Yeah, maybe a couple hundred years later, Jesus needs a second to figure out what to do. <laughs> like he didn't do that a lot in the synoptics. He just knew what to do all the time. But here we go. Out they go. What they believed in was a Christ more powerful than the most powerful things in the world. They believed in a Christ that was greater than scripture. A Christ, a Christ that they would put in this story head to head versus Moses. That's a, that's a dangerous, nearly heretical place to go. A Christ that would say, in essence, what he does say in the synoptics, which you have heard that the law says this, says this but I tell you this. Moses said this, but, but this, is what, this is what I say. Richard Rohr, who I'm sure you've heard of. Does he quote him every week? Yeah. Uh, he's this interesting Franciscan Catholic like hero of burnout, confused evangelicals. It's super interesting. Um, <laughs> and he says, uh, the hardest thing for evangelicals to do is to love and trust Christ more than the scriptures. And he says the hardest thing for Catholics to do is to love and trust Christ more than the church. And of course we all ought to love and trust the scriptures and the church. But Christ first. The, the living, dynamic, real presence of God in us. And I think in this story, part of what they're starting to say is it's Christ over scripture even though scripture's great. And then it's Christ over condemnation. Obviously, just from a narrative standpoint, that's the point of the story. 
This woman was condemned, meets Jesus. She's not condemned. And Jesus says, where are those who condemn you? And she says, they're not here. You know why they're not here? Because he, he Jedi mind tricked them out. Because <laughs> he did it. Because he got rid of them for her. And then he says, I don't condemn you either. The only one in the story that probably has the authority to condemn her doesn't. I don't condemn you either. This was the gospel that seemed to be developing in the generations after Jesus. Imagine a world with no condemnation. Maybe they snuck this in John because they knew what happened in John 3 when a religious official came to Jesus and Jesus was trying to explain everything to him. And this was Nicodemus. He was like a theology professor. He wasn't getting it. And Jesus says it's like this. God loves the world so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have life. God would not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. The story fits great. <laughs> no condemnation. And the last thing is uh, that Christ is greater than sin. This last line of the story is interesting to deal with. Again, I would just, and part of me just wants hippie Jesus to, to wrap it up, right? Does anyone condemn you? I don't condemn you either. Have a great day. But what does the Johannine church of the second, third, or fourth centuries say? I don't condemn you either. Go, sin no more. I was reading an article by, I don't even know who it was, um, about this passage just this week. Obviously liberal, progressive. I agreed with every single thing. He, it, almost everything I wanted to say, this person said it. I don't remember if it was a man or a woman, just said it. And at the very end, they're like, well, just remember when he says sin no more that we're not even sure this text was supposed to be in the Bible. <laughs> All right, come on, you crazy liberals. Like, <laughs> and it, it's fine I, in an improvisational way. If we decide we don't need this language of sin anymore to fully grasp and understand the gospel, I don't care about that word. But what I do care about is that this, this subgroup of Christians were so evolved in their understanding of Christ, and yet there's something about him at the end where he challenges her to live a better life, to get better. Part of why I don't like it is I know in that culture she was probably more or less treated as property and a slave and didn't have a choice if someone raped her. I don't like saying don't sin no more if she was a victim. That feels super weird to me. Didn't feel weird to the third century people. Maybe Jesus isn't talking about her sexual stuff. Maybe sin means something different in this story, in this context. But what I think about a lot is in that story, it's the religious people that surround her in their fancy garbs and who all they want is everyone's respect and to be heard and to do what we say. And so they yell it all the time. And Jesus comes along as the people whisperer. He doesn't yell very often. Only to those guys, actually. And so when he sends them away, what they desperately want, what those guys desperately want is to be able to yell at the top of their lungs, stop sinning, and everybody stop sinning, and they won't do it. He says to her, after he has not condemned her and still doesn't condemn her, he says, in my mind, I, would, I read the last line like this right now. Um, where are they? Those who condemn you, they're not here. I don't condemn you either. 
but stop it. Change. You're killing yourself. That's how I interpret it. The call to Jesus is always a little uncomfortable. And usually in ways we don't expect it to be. So I believe that Jesus can whisper grace and love to us so long that we actually want to start changing the way we live. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you so, I thank you so much that this story was preserved for us. Uh, actually took a bit of uh, historical heroics to save it. And uh, I resonate so much with the Jesus of this story and the Christ it presents. God, is, uh, as so many of us have gone on this journey with Scripture and have abandoned uh, sort of myopic thinking and exceptionalism, have felt that there's less of a need for us to kind of spin doctor things, but to deal with what that which, with which we don't understand and to express our doubts. Thank you that we've created a culture like that in many places in our world. Help us to continue, though, to wrestle with those things that convict, that make us want to change. And above all, God, I just, I just ask that, uh, that we could go out today and live as if we are the Jesus of this story, not just the woman. That we could go out with the power you give us over the powers, over religion, over condemnation, over sin. And that we could whisper to those around us that they're not condemned either. That they're loved. We pray in Jesus' name.